This is Train to Perform, the undisputed alpha podcast in training, fitness, and sports performance. Here, you'll develop your skills with the cold, hard facts in fitness, sports performance, recovery, and nutrition. Real, tried and true, evidence-based facts that have been proven to move you faster, move you stronger, and move you forward. Now, here's your host of Train to Perform, Julian Sisman. Hey guys, welcome back to the Train to Perform podcast. Um, so today we have a great podcast <clears throat> talking a little bit more about athletic performance, youth development, um, with James Wagon Schultz. Uh, James uh, grew up in the U.S., multiple sport athlete as he was growing up, um, and he got into uh, soccer coaching, performance training, um, you know, after after college, um, and basically has been focusing on those two areas of, um, over the past, um, you know, 10 or so years. Um, he has, uh, worked with, uh, national team, U S national team, soccer, youth national team, um, multiple different colleges as a soccer coach, assistant fitness coach. Um, we talk about his, you know, background, where he came from, we talk about return to play, talk about how to really allow kids to enjoy their sport, you know, when kids should start strength training, you know, when kids should engage in something that is, or focus on one sport, and a lot more. If you enjoy it, please, please, please rate and review. Thank you. So I was in, how's everything going since the SIG event? Uh, are you still, um, I remember, are you still with the Rapids or no? I left the Rapids in December, at the end of December. Um, just decided that I wanted to spend more time with my family. Uh, that's, that's interesting because uh, it's the same thing when I uh, interviewed Darcy. And that was like one of the things he was talking about, how uh, he he got kind of got away from the pro pro scene because you know you're always gone and you're never like home and. But I don't know where you weren't with the the pro team, were you? Not with the first team, but uh, you know, in the MLS Academy environment, it's it's not that much different in the sense that it's ten and a half months. I mean, it's the differences in the sense that. The, obviously the athletes you're working with and the MLS schedule and CBA, but as far as going all the time, you know, you get a couple of bigger breaks when you're in the Academy, but it's pretty much a similar in the sense that you just go and there's always somebody that needs something all the time. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I decided, so, I decided at the end of December just to take a break from kind of the, you know, the MLS pro environment for a while just to see what happens. Are you uh, still associated with U.S. soccer 
a little bit? Yeah. So I, well, I primarily through coach education. So I teach the courses for us soccer. I teach the, the C and the grassroots, uh, the D and the grassroots courses. Uh, and then I'm also apprenticing to be a B license instructor. So I'm on a B course right now, kind of learning everything to become a B license instructor as well. Mm. Um, as far as the youth national teams and the sports science with the per diem, I mean, uh, 2017, I did a lot of camps and then, um, you know, was kind of in conversations with folks, but then, you know, they went full like per diem route with certain people. And then in the last year and a half, it's been shut down because of obviously the situation. They haven't even had any programming. When I talked to Patrick Mannix, um, you know, he's full-time out of Chicago and Patrick was saying like, there are some days he's got plenty to do and some days he's bored uh, when he's got nothing to do. Wow. That's crazy. That's interesting. Uh, I mean, I guess since they're not really associated with uh, Academy anymore, like it's just, you have national teams. That's really much. That's pretty much it. Who's that? Cause isn't us soccer. They don't have, they're not really like, not how they were running the academy and now it's all MLS now. Yeah. So it's, it's MLS run league. Uh, and I'm in, yeah. I'm in, I'm in contact with those guys uh, because I, I've started a, basically a, a subcommittee, which is not really a committee because we wanted to keep it informal, but basically I've been advocating for a health and performance working group committee to support the development academy, but now MLS next. And so yeah. we started that. Uh, we've had a yeah. couple of we've had a couple of meetings, and I'm basically uh, advising the league very informally, but on various topics like recovery, multiple games in a weekend, um, late developer tool, things of that nature that they've asked me for. So uh, I'm still in contact with them. That's awesome. All right. Well, before we get into the meat of things. Um, Kind of give a background on like, you know, how you got into, you know, where you are. I know you're kind of like on both ends of, you know, coaching and SNC. So, you know, what, you know, what kind of got you into it? And then I'll just kind of go from there on a the few questions that I have and whatever pops into my head. Okay. All right. Is that just cool? Go from wherever. Yeah. 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 Wherever. So like how like where did okay. you start? Like I'm assuming you were uh you know played sports when you were younger. Yeah, so I was a kind of like yeah. Kind of give the background, right? Give the the story. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Got it. Uh so I was a multi-sport athlete growing up and uh, you know as a little kid, uh I played everything. Played all all kinds of different sports. Um and then when I got into high school, I did three sports a year for the high school teams. Uh, I played you know, soccer, basketball, and golf um, all the time, like just constantly playing multiple sports, uh, which made me a pretty good multi-sport athlete, but maybe a pretty average soccer player since I, I did so many, so many other things. Uh, but at the same time, I, um, I really enjoyed playing multiple sports. I enjoyed the, the individual sport. I enjoyed the team sport. Um, and when I went off to college, I, I thought I was going to play multiple sports in college and I ended up playing golf and, and soccer 
but not at an extremely competitive level in part because I wasn't prepared. I wasn't ready for the demands that college athletics can hit you over the head with if you're not ready. I think a lot of people go into it thinking, well, I was a good, good high school athlete, therefore I'll play in college. But mm. in certain environments, you kind of get over your head. So, um, so I had a really uh, up and down, in and out kind of a college scene for a while until I got serious about wanting to graduate. And, uh, and I found a degree in exercise science at Colorado State and had a couple of good professors that made me fall in love with exercise science and just kind of get really excited about physiology and, um, and spending my time kind of thinking about the human body and human performance. And, uh, but it was never a linear path from there to what I've been doing for the last you know, 15 to 20 years. I ended up working for Outward Bound for a number of years, uh, working across the country and up in Alaska, supporting groups that would go out into the wilderness to learn about leadership and team building and kind of a self-discovery model. And uh, it wasn't until really in 2003 where I got a job with U.S. soccer in California working for the national teams. They had moved Chicago's national teams out of soccer house into the Home Depot Center at the time. So 2003 is a Home Depot Center. Now I think it's Dignity Health and it's gone through some other names as well. And they were just building all the, the fields out there and they were getting ready to do coaching education courses there and run national team programming out of there. And I got kind of fell back in love with soccer, fell back in love with the idea of working in an elite environment. Um, and so really, you know, kind of fast forward to like 2005, I started coaching and uh, I moved back to Colorado. My wife and I wanted to be back in Colorado. So we moved back and I started coaching club team. and recognize that not many people knew how to do quote unquote fitness in soccer. Uh, and that wasn't that long ago, but even, even locally it was, well, I've got a background in exercise phys, so therefore I knew how to program. And I kind of had to learn on the fly, um, you know, or dig up old papers and old research and old books and um, go to some really trusted sources that have been doing it a lot longer than I had been. Uh, and, and really just kind of do my second education. <laughs> Um, and so I learned a lot on the fly, but then I also decided to get a master's degree and I was thankful uh, at my time at Colorado college. So I was coaching club and then I got on board with Colorado college division three school, liberal arts school, Colorado Springs, a wonderful coach named Horst Richardson who ended up coaching for 50 years. Uh, that's five zero at Colorado college. Wow. And he took me under his wing and uh, I learned how to become a better person, a better coach because of his mentorship. And he also allowed me to kind of develop the fitness side of the team. And um, so I also said, well, look, let's see if I can get a master's degree. So I got a master's in sports medicine with an emphasis on strength and conditioning. Uh, 2012 graduated with my master's and I was still coaching at Colorado College at the time. And I really, really liked kind of mirror, like having both aspects. I liked being the assistant coach. I liked being the performance coach. I liked diving into the fitness. I liked diving into the, the studies. And um, that really kind of lended itself to a number of different opportunities moving forward. And then 2012, I got hooked up with a, a club team where they wanted to build an athletic performance program for a youth club, a non-MLS, non-development academy club, but kind of a, aspiring club that wanted to be at the next level. Um, so I got hired, uh, FC Boulder and built a performance program from scratch for 3000 kids, recreational, competitive, um, oh 
got a facility going, um, got the backing and the support to run camps, to hire part-time help. I went out and got internships. I built partnerships with the local sports medicine enterprise. Um, you know, looked at it from a holistic approach, try to look at it. How can we, you know, who's the best nutritionist around? Who's the best sports mm -hmm. psych around? How can we get kids going and see doctors? Because if somebody hurts themselves, how can we get athletic trainers on the field and have that all covered and paid for by somebody else rather than charging it to our membership? So I was really fortunate that I was given a lot of opportunity to do that. And we were able to do it successfully for five years, get an indoor facility, program it so that kids were doing injury prevention, if you will, and strength and conditioning in season as part of their normal training. Uh, it was a really cool opportunity. And from there, I ended up kind of diving deeper into the uh, neuroscience, if you will, kind of more the psychology of strength and conditioning, uh, but also the psychology of being a head coach and what that meant. Um, and along the way, I was a director of coaching. I ended up becoming an academy director. Uh, and we ended up getting this club FC Boulder into the development academy. Um, and awesome. so I was, a, I was academy director as well as coaching. But I became stretched. I became doing too many things. Um, and in many ways, the quality in which I was delivering was actually poor relative to my standards. And, um, and it was like a trip until Portugal. I was getting mentored through some other people where I realized I was stretched. I was doing too much. And um, I took a break from that. But I also got in a call at the same time. It was kind of, kind of funny, but basically I got a call because I had been in contact with folks that I knew from U.S. soccer. And I said, hey, if you ever need a, a sports scientist or a strength coach for national teams like Perdiem, let me know. And they said, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll let you know. And I got hooked on on February of 2017 and went with Brad Friedel in the U19s in Florida. Um, so it was January 2017 where uh, I met with uh, the national teams out of California because the convention was there. The convention was hosted in 2017 in LA and I had a, a speaking there, um, like a presentation at the convention. There's the U S it was at a, was that like N what is it? it's not, it's not it's United soccer coaches. Yeah. United it was the, coaches. okay. Yeah. It was the NSCAA and then it became United soccer coaches. Okay. Um, so 2017, I got a presentation there and I, I made an effort to go knock on a door down at the national teams uh, Jim Morehouse, who was the national team's coordinator, um, like on an administrative level. And uh, we reconnected after I had been there uh, 13 years earlier. And and I said, you know, hey, here's my background. Here's my resume. If you ever need anything, you know, I'd love to help out. And, and then a month later, I got a call to go work with Brad in the 19s down in Florida, which was a fantastic experience because Brad had had all of his international experience. Um, it was really great because look, you know, looking forward to today, there are guys that were in that camp are now pros. Marco Farfan, uh, with the Timbers, uh, Georgie, uh, with the Chicago fire. Um, you know, Aiden Stanley, uh, I think he's now just signed with Nashville recently. Um, mm -hmm. you know, Griffin Dorsey was up in Toronto. So it was, it was kind of an interesting mix of, well, Griffin might not have been in that camp, but it was an interesting camp. And then, I ended up getting on when I was in Portugal in 2017. I was needing to take a break. I actually got a call to stay and work with the U18s with Omid. So I stayed in Lisbon after this professional development course. 
and did the sports science. And that's where like Mark McKenzie and Griffin Dorsey, Marcus of the union. And now is at King. So it was, it was kind of an interesting, and I think that's maybe where Aiden Stanley was, uh, was not that camp with the 18s. Um, so it was really interesting to kind of have this journey of like, uh, work in a club, work in division three college, go to club environment. And the next thing you know, thrust into working with national teams. And, um, and then the last three or four years, I was at two different academies with the Philadelphia union and in the Colorado Rapids doing all the like sports science and sports performance. Um, so that's kind of the journey. And, and, you know, right now I'm, um, just kind of consulting on the side. So I've got, uh, a handful of contacts around the world that I give them advice on. Uh, I'm a coach educator for us soccer and coach educator for United soccer coaches. So I teach the advanced courses. I also wrote some information on sports performance as part of those advanced diplomas. So like if somebody signs up for the national or advanced national, they'll get an hour long presentation on sports performance that I did for them. Um, and then we're currently working on a sports performance diploma through United soccer coaches. There's myself and three other mm. people that there's myself and three other people that have written all the content and we're, we're like editing the content and filming it right now and making it all online. And, uh, there's a first cohort of individuals that are going through it right now. So that's, it's that's kind of me. Yeah. Because we've been trying to get in contact with, uh, the people at United soccer coaches about like having some relationship with NSCA and, uh, it's been like kind of weird, <laughs> but it is what it is. So I know Stacy, I know Stacy Wilson, I think has been trying to advocate, um, between the NSCA and United soccer coaches. Oh, okay. That's good to, it's good to know. Yeah. I mean, I know it's, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit weird now because we're in this like, you know, pandemic, things aren't the same, like, you know, things are a little bit different. So, um, with with Philly, like, uh, don't they have like? Uh, I'm not, and I'm not saying that you are doing a, we're doing a bad job. Don't they have like uh, Draper, or whatever his name is, or were you with like Academy when you were when you said you're doing like working with them? Yeah, like, I was with the Academy. Academy. Okay. Yeah, Garrison's Garrison's the head of performance for the first team, and he also oversees the okay. Academy. Um, I think he actually might have just recently got a job title. Uh, but Garrison's fantastic, really, really smart, articulate, considerate. And uh, no, I got hired as a, they had the rules called athletic development coach. So I got to learn under Garrison. Uh, but at the same time, I got to learn from Bill Knowles, uh, one of the best reconditioning experts in the world. I mean, literally in the same office as Bill. Um, and when he would bring in his pro athletes and, Bill also helped write the athletic development model for the Philadelphia union, uh, for their Academy. So I got hired and there was, uh, another, co another coach there. And then there was three athletic trainers and we were all doing athletic development, strength and conditioning, but, uh, Eric, myself were the main strength coaches for the Academy. And so, uh, we would have, communication and collaborate where we could with Garrison specifically about players uh, going to train with the first team. And then one of the things we did, which I think is pretty cool is we ended up setting up kind of a monthly performance meeting where first team Garrison would come in and then everybody from the performance department on the Academy would meet and we would talk about kind of our overall system, our overall structure, our processes, data, 
players where they're at. The academy director, Tommy Wilson, would sit in on him. If he couldn't, another coach would. Sports psychology was in the room. I mean, it was really, really a collaborative environment toward supporting the players. It's interesting that you say that because, um, you know, and you probably know more than I do, but do all the uh, the MLS or clubs, academy, do they do as much as Philly's been, you know, doing lately with the amount of like, you know, sports psychology, nutrition, like multiple levels of, you know, athletic development. Like, I mean, I'm not trying to uh, down, like down player talk trash about a local team where I am, but it is like kind of a shit show over there. Um, it's just interesting how like each club team is, has, you know, certain amounts of support for the athletes, I guess I could say. Um, and some just have nothing or uh, it might just be the one that I know. <laughs> I mean, obviously it comes down to money and stuff like that, but you know, it's, it's just kind of interesting. I don't know. You, you, you probably know a little bit more than I do about like the whole back background, uh, the, the scene behind. Um, so I don't know. It's interesting how they have so much stuff. Yeah, there are, I think it continues and I would be curious about other sports in our country, like volleyball, for instance, or baseball. Um, yeah, money talks and, you know, the union are well-funded uh, from an academy standpoint. That also comes from a major investment from the owner, knowing that maybe I might lose money for a number of years. Um, and then, you know, obviously look what happened with, with Brendan and, and Mark uh, being sold. and you know, there's some money that's recouped that some of that goes to the league. But the reality is, is there was a vision in place by Richie Graham and his vision is being executed. And, um, the school is a massive component of that. Having YSC Academy yeah. there is a massive component to being able to attract, you know, quality players, quality staff, and to be able to, to build this robust multi-prong approach and and the way you have to think about it julian is clubs can decide that they're going to go all in on this and they're going to invest in it and create a true what i would think would be like a swiss army knife you know if you open mm -hmm. up a swiss army knife you've got these different tools that are needed for different days and different things and that's the neat thing about having a vision and being able to execute it is having you know yeah the nutrition is sports psychology education athletic development uh new you know, all these different components that go into it, sports science. And then there's some that say, look, we, we've got a vision, but maybe it's a 10 year plan and we can only do one thing right now. And maybe we're only able to execute it for two or three years because of the financial resources supporting it. And so we're going to start at the low hanging fruit. And maybe that's um, just getting a coordinated warm up for all of our senior teams that do the same type of injury reduction activation or injury reduction warm up. And let's do that for two years. That's relatively low cost in-house education. And we can build it off of that. And then there's some that just have no understanding of what it means to create a vision. And they're not concerned about it and not trying to execute it. And therefore it doesn't happen. So I think mm -hmm. a lot of that, so it comes down to leadership. And that's one of the things I think, you know, with Richie and the Philadelphia Union, 
there's a tremendous amount of you know resources put behind it, but also this vision to say, I want to do this. Let's make it happen. And and that's even more uh, prevalent now because you know obviously you're seeing players come through the ranks and go into the first team, and they just signed five homegrowns for 2021. Um, so it, it can happen. Uh, it's whether or not people are committed to it and showing the leadership to do it. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally agree with you. I think, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I, I was alive when MLS, you know, kind of started and it's just interesting how it's grown to what it is right now. And I, I definitely think it's growing. Um, it's just, uh, I, I personally think that it's good that it, took over the academy because it just makes more sense for them to run it because it just, you know, why not? Um, so I, I definitely think it's a, it's a great place for kids that, you know, want to, you know, get to that next level. Um, but uh, I think this, you know, like you said, I, you know, money talks and, you know, if you can't afford certain things at that moment, then you kind of have to deal with what you have at that moment. So. But, um, like, what got you into coaching or getting your coaching licenses? I mean, I know that's a little uh, little off topic, but, like, it's interesting because, like, I know you and I know Dave Tenney has done that as well. Um, I don't know too many other, like, SNCs that have done both. I think, I think any young SNC or performance coach that wants to get into their sport ought to pursue the coaching licenses or badges that they have for those sports and not mm-hmm. pigeonhole themselves to say, I'm only just an SNC coach. I think that you have to have a unique understanding of the, what are the demands of the game? What are the demands of mm-hmm. softball? What are the demands of basketball? Do you truly understand some of the tactical stuff that goes on within those sports? And that will help you become a better SNC or performance coach. So I started out, kind of both on the road in parallel of kind of the fitness track uh, exercise fizz along with coaching. So I actually did my D license. I think it was 2006 or 2007. I did my D license. So it was before it was after I had my graduate, my my undergrad Mm. in exercise science, but before I started really uh, down the fitness path. And so uh, I always wanted to know what it would be like to be a head coach because if you zoom out a little bit, I think it's important to note that ultimately, and this is my my opinion, I could be uh, land blasted for it, but the head coach is the head of performance. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Yeah, the head, <laughs> co- the head coach ultimately is going to make decisions. They're going to make decisions mm-hmm. about you know, when to push up the intensities, they may seek information from performance coaches, sports scientists, trainers, but then the coaches is still going to make a decision about who's going to play, who's going to train, what the dimensions are, what the intensity should be, um, what the tactical outcomes are, because at least in our sport, the style of play and the coach's philosophy and the coach's vision for how they want to play is ultimately going to rule. That is, Mm -hmm. The performance coach's job is to support that. So for me, I wanted to know what it would be like to go through the process of being a head coach while understanding the physiological demand. So yeah, I got my A license, uh, 2010. And, uh, it was really important for me to do that because I wanted to know if, if 
you know, however the cards were going to shake out for me that I was prepared to be able to say, look, I can not only recruit players, I can uh, help develop players, but I can also do it in a smart, progressive, safe environment based upon science. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, I have my D I, I still am on that. Like, thought of getting my C because I know it's a little bit more it's I'm sure it's totally different than when you took your C that the C now yeah I teach the C I just finished a course actually uh teaching a C license yeah and it's the content's different the pace of the course is different uh the volume of information is much more uh, deeper and uh it's good it's so much better than than when I went through it a long time ago yeah yeah I'll, I'll probably get it at some point because i'm i'm in the middle of well i just began doing my phd in like health and human performance so like i gotta do one thing at a time <laughs> that's great where are you where are you doing it at uh rocky mountain university of health professionals yep on utah yeah. yep yeah it's it's good i mean i do my master's there um you know learned a lot uh, you know, you know, changes your mind and the way you think about things like tremendously, um, especially when you dive into the, you know, science and the research and trying to put the into application versus just saying, Oh, well, that's cool. Like it's a great research paper, you know, like actually, actually figuring out ways to apply it is, um, what's the fun part about it. So um, do you know, Brian Schramm at Youngstown? I think it's Youngstown. Youngstown State? Yeah. In Ohio? In Ohio? Uh, I think it's in Ohio. Yeah, mm-hmm. so Brian Shrum, uh, he and, uh, you know, they run the other podcast, Just Kicking It. Yeah. Yeah, yeah with, with Josh. And um, so Brian got his PhD at the same location, the same place you did. Uh, and he okay. Was performance. Might be an interesting contact for you. Yeah, I'll have to reach out to him. Um, so kind of diving into the, you know, uh, youth soccer, um, you know, like what's, what's your, you know, definition of development? Um, you know, what is, you know, what's necessary for a kid? Uh, is it, you know, there's always these conversations of, do they need multiple sports? Um, you know, is S and C necessary? Um, how do you incorporate it? Like when should they start? Like all, those are always the questions that, you know, I run a, you know, S and C business or fitness business, however you want to describe it. And I train, you know, young athletes and it's still to this day, even though with all the research that, Oh, well, my kid is going to get injured weight training. And I'm like, then I got to go into the, like 20 minute conversation of why it's not going to happen, but it is what it is. Like, you know, there's, you know, the internet is going to continue to say that. So like kind of dive into like, what's your thoughts on, you know, development, like, you know, once they start, is S and C necessary? How, how do you feel is, um, that it should be incorporated for these young kids to, you know, develop, to, you know, bring out their potential? Well, it's a, it's a multi-layered question that you're yeah. asking, you know, it's, and, and depending upon 
the angle you want to go with it. My, yeah, my, my philosophy has, has been shaped by a couple of people, uh, notwithstanding Bill Knowles, um, was extremely influential in my early, when I was starting to look at, um, athletes returning from injury and, and some of the early work that Bill did specifically when he was at, uh, when he was up in Vermont, um, at a ski academy up there. Uh, he did a lot of really good looking at how to get athletes back from ACLs and he had an athletic training background and he was willing to try things. He was trying to willing to take risks. And, uh, so it's Burke mountain Academy and, and he was there for a long time. And I really kind of, kind of from afar, just kind of looked at that model of like, it doesn't matter what sport they're playing. You look at the human being. Um, and then I got latched on to Vern Gambetta, uh, and the gain, you know, his gain network there. And, um, I love Vern. I think what he's written over the years, like for 40 years, is kind of this, like it could be applicable right now today. It's really some timeless information that he's written. So when I look at it from an athletic development standpoint, I look at what those two gentlemen have done and as well as a number of others, uh, all over the world. And I think cultural plays a massive influence on how people could be developed. Right. Cause if you go to Brazil and you go to the streets of Brazil, you see kids, um, playing futsal and they're playing in the morning, they're playing at night, they're playing on the streets, they're playing barefoot. There's no weight room. There's no, uh, somebody teaching them how to squat. They're just playing right? They're just developing based upon their culture. Um, and you know, that may not be the same for somebody, uh, you know, maybe in the Western, the Western hemisphere or the, you know, in the U S where it's, uh, they feel like they need to go somewhere to be able to be taught how to squat. Because if you look at babies, I mean, babies have the perfect form of squat, right? And then as they get older, they start to maybe lose it. They lose the shin angle, this and that. And so you, I really take a, uh, a constraints led approach, I think more than anything, which is trying to create the environment for them to develop. So, you know, if I'm looking at your question and if we were to talk specifically with soccer, um, I truly believe that young athletes can develop a lot of athletic qualities through free play, through unstructured free play with their friends the problem is, is, is that happening? Is that happening on the streets? Is it happening in the parks? Is it happening in the neighborhoods? Uh, or are parents uh, more hovering and more controlling about too many schedules and too many things? Or they feel like at eight years old, they've got to go and hire a speed coach. The reality is, is an eight, nine, and 10, 11 year old, if they were to go play tag, and if they were to go play a game of baseball on their own, they're going to get faster. They're going to develop certain things on their own innately. And with their own brain without having somebody influence it, except for their friends. And I would, I mean, I would love to be able to shift the conversation in the world toward how do you create more unstructured free play and how do they want to do it, right? Without parents telling them to go do it. Like, how does a kid become motivated to want to do it on their own, right? And through role modeling and so on and so forth. So that's a whole nother podcast. That's a whole nother conversation. (laughs) But I, I, I believe that you know, eight to 12 year olds, if let the sport dictate some of their development. So let them play soccer, let them play three V three, four V four, five V five. Um, because so much of decision-making and speed and 
change of direction can be developed within plain small-sided games, uh, unstructured, or through some sort of organized league, if you will. And so to me, it's really the education process with parents and starting them young uh, and starting them really young that they can develop quite well on their own. There are going to be exceptions to the rule and there might be kids that have, uh, you know, something wrong with their ankles or something slightly off with their growth, maybe their early developer. um, And so they're having more pain early. So maybe you have to have an off ramp for them to see somebody like a performance coach, a physical therapist, or somebody who might be able to work with them to overcome Osgood Schlatter or Seaver's pain. And through that may require a structured SNC program that is nothing more than either body weight mechanics. Um, I mean, give a could give a kid a pull-up bar. I mean, quite frankly, that's mm-hmm. what kids need these days are pull-up bars and jump ropes. And you can do a tremendous amount of damage um, on the positive side, meaning a kid can develop quite, quite well with a pull-up bar and a jump rope. So I do think that, an educated SNC coach that has a holistic approach toward helping young athletes reach their potential whenever that may be. It might be at 18. It might be at 14. It might be at 27. It might be at 35. I think it's, it's here regardless of when they reach their potential that they're given their opportunity to explore it. Mm-hmm. And that's through a sound science-backed, evidence-backed, experience-based back practice. And I think all those things are relevant. Not only having the the science and the evidence of doing it for 30 years or 20 years, but then the experience of doing it for 20 to 30 years. You know, and I think that experience of learning um, how to develop players for their sport, for their demands, preparing them for the demands is really crucial. So you know, it's kind of a long-winded answer, uh, Julian. But really, I, I believe in the sport creating the demands for the for the for the young athletes. I believe in unstructured free play, if if we have to call it futsal as the closest thing to create that, um, then let's do that. And then I believe in a holistic approach. That you know, yes, you're going to help a kid squat, maybe broad jump faster, and develop some power at some point in their late adolescence. But if it doesn't translate the sport uh, and they're doing it just for show, then it's kind of irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's uh, talking about free play. Um, I actually, because of COVID, you know, with um, there not really being any recess right now or PE, um, I like took the initiative and uh, like basically do that with some groups of kids during the week. Um, I mean, you know, they have PE, they have PE, but it's like on a Zoom and like <laughs> it's like kind of worthless. So I basically do that. Like I bring a bunch of equipment and these kids are like middle school kids and I'm like, all right, what do you guys want to do today? Just pick whatever. Most of the time, it's um, what's that game? Um, oh my god, we playing it today. You had like the little circle and a little ball, and you throw it up. Um, oh my god, spike ball. 
Um, so we were playing like spike ball, like for 45 minutes. Um, and they love it. And then that's it. Um, so it, I, I, I agree with you. I, I especially cause a lot of kids, um, you know, you, you know, most of these kids play one sport. Like I ask them all, I'm like, what do you play? Oh, I play soccer. Oh, I play baseball. Oh, I play this. So just, uh, I'm, you know, I'm like what you're saying, just trying to get them away from the, doing the same repetitive movements over and over again and sort of enjoy like some type of activity versus like hating it. Yeah. So, that's, that's a massive point, Julian. I mean, it's, the enjoyment factor is massive. There's really good research that I think is underexplored in the SNC performance field regarding early trauma and ACEs, early childhood trauma and ACEs, and looking at the way kids might be scrutinized based upon their level of experience, you know, their ability to jump or skip or run and a coach's negative feedback toward them and how that manifests in the body and how that shows up later as part of injury or, um, you know, just the way the repetitive movements, like you're saying, you know, you start to get these, these vector forces going down the same path all the time on the bones because of the same repetitive motion. And all of a sudden you've got these, you know, predispositions to have um, some real significant issues with your bones later in life or, or obviously then the joints and, cartilage, et cetera, and ligaments. And so I think that early development of multi-sport, physical literacy, multi-movement really becomes a part of movement efficiency. And so if you become a better movement, somebody who can move really well, that's going to lend itself to enhancing their development when you put them on a trap bar deadlift or when you put them on a front squat. They're going to have good range of motion. They're going to have good understanding of hand-eye coordination and their kinesthetic awareness about themselves is going to lend itself to potentially, you know, develop muscle growth faster, rate of firing faster. And when you're truly going through the development phase of adding lean mass or adding power, they're good movers. Um, so then therefore perhaps they're going to be able to recruit faster. So I really believe in that. And I believe in allowing the constraints led approach with young athletes uh, so that they explore their movement potential. And then I believe in using multi-directional games, small-sided competitive games like spike ball or slam ball, or uh, it's good for a soccer team to play volleyball, have them play in the sand, you know, have them play three aside in the sand, have them comfortable falling, rolling. I mean, I could go on for hours about this, but I think you get the idea that it's, um, that we don't know when they're truly going to be the best soccer player. I mean, I know Arsene yeah. Wenger said years ago that if a kid at 14 didn't have the technical ability, he probably wasn't going to make it. And there might, that might be true for the top one to 3%. You know, the pros that you watch on TV and the best, they, they probably did play one sport. They become exceptional at it. Um, but there's always an exception to that. If you look at Brady and Aaron Rodgers, right? These guys play baseball or indoor basketball through their adolescence, through puberty, before they decided to focus in on one sport. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on that. Um, I don't know. I, my whole opinion on, 
all of this is, you know, uh, especially about the one sport athletes is, I think it's more or less, um, well, I think it's way more on the, like, if the kid can just understand the sport and understand, you know, understanding how to move, obviously, but like understanding how to move with, especially with soccer, with and without the ball. Um, Cause I was like watching this kid today or the other day training at this facility that I was at and, you know, you know, shooting on goal and nobody's, you know, there's no goalie and you're missing shots. And it's like understanding how to coordinate, like you're receiving and then hitting the ball and like doing all those things at like one time. Um, like I personally think like you don't just develop that from playing soccer. Like you can get those, uh, you know, being able to that, that coordination of like receiving the ball and like doing all that stuff from like other sports. Cause like I, when I was growing up like you, like I was playing baseball, played basketball, played, you know, you know, played different sports. And I believe that it helped me and actually enhanced my ability to play soccer. I'm just understanding how to move in space. But I, I think there's a lot that, um, goes into the kid just understanding the sport and like how to you know play it more, like from a psychological and like a mental level uh and understanding how to you know do certain things in the sport um because like you know i i, I you know obviously you practice you got to do the practice and all that kind of stuff and like you know all that stuff you know, helps, but I think there's another level to it that why are certain people like above and keep growing and keep getting better, like a Messi, Ronaldo, and like that. Um, just, uh, just like being able to quick make those quicker decisions and things like that. I mean, clearly it's from practice, but I think it also has to do like, you know you know, maybe visualizing all that kind of stuff. Like, do kids do that? Do you even do that? Like, there's so many things that can be thrown into the bucket of like, you know, what is necessary, but, um, yeah. you know, the fitness is important. Strength and conditioning is important. Like all that's important. But, um, I think there's like, you know, I think the 1%, like you said, I think those kids are just like those kids that just, like only focus on how to get better. Maybe that's watching more games than other kids and you know, things like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I know the research is out there on who becomes a pro and who doesn't. Right. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that are smarter than me to have figured it out and nature nurture conversation comes up all the time mm -hmm. about, you know, is it the culture is it your family? You know, I mean, I, when I look at the modern American youth soccer player. I'll ask them who their favorite MLS team is that they saw play in the last 10 days. And most of them don't. And part of that is, I mean, things that are out of their control, right? The TV networks, the money that goes toward La Liga, Premier League, Liga MX, uh, and so on. Champions League. So the money's there in those leagues. So therefore they're on TV more. So it's easier to watch them. And yet, Last year, and specifically now this year, 
there's plenty of opportunity to watch MLS games. There's plenty mm-hmm. of opportunity to watch. So like when a kid says he wants to be pro, I go, okay, let's check yourself on the reality of what that looks like. Cause I've been on it. I've known it. I've seen it. And then let's check yourself on what team are you following in MLS? What do let's be an American soccer player. And if you eventually make it to Europe, which obviously right now there's a massive trend and there's great, um, great signings that are happening all over the place for Americans. It's fantastic. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm talking specifically on the male side, but we're also seeing it happen on the female side as well. But it's like how many of them watch, uh, you know, an MLS Wednesday match? How many watch the highlights of it? How many can tell me who the designated player is for their home team? So if you're in Dallas and you're following FC Dallas, who's the, Who's the DP? Uh, you know, who's the six for them? You know, those are things that are relevant because it tells you, accuse you in on their culture, their understanding, their ability to watch and learn from watching other people do it. And so there's repetitions without repetitions, right? So it's being able to receive, turn and shoot on goal with no goalie and no pressure. And then there's the repetition of having to make a decision under pressure in a game environment, 11 v 11. Um, I would always argue that the 11 v 11 environment's more important. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's no replacement for the game. And, and yet there are things that you can do to supplement it. I mean, tennis players and golfers and figure skaters do thousands of hours of repetitions without competition, without somebody else there. Um, and that's obviously going to lend itself to becoming a better athlete in that sport. Yeah. So my uh, my next question for you, kind of going off of what you were talking about um, in the the soccer state conference, um, and I know most of it can be. It's I'm sure most of it was probably like pro level, like usage of like the fitness and like incorporating mostly in uh, in you know game situations and getting fitness that way versus you know the everyone else wants to, you know, run whatever they feel like running that day with no reason. <laughs> um, so what, what's your, what's your opinion on, you know, using the game as the fitness versus additional fitness? I mean, I know there's probably a place in time for additional fitness for certain players, certain situations. So I, I, I want to get your opinion on that. Cause I think it's been a, I personally think it's an important topic because I try to, you know, tell even players that are in high school that they don't need to do extra fitness if, you know, the intensity of their practice is at a high level and it's, you know, somewhat replicable to what you're going to be playing versus just running around the track. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I, I live in both camps. I live in the world of teaching the licenses and understanding that in theory that if the head coach is ahead of performance and that in theory, if a head coach can design an intelligent training session that has a progressive overload throughout their microcycle, their morphocycle or their mesocycle, et cetera, that if there's some intelligent planning that you can get the fitness you need for soccer in soccer. I do live in the camp though also where I'll dip my toe in and say, I think isolated running has its place, 
to help develop certain physical qualities that may prepare them better or prepare, not better, but prepare them well to go then play the game. And I think that's something that I've learned over the years is that if you live in the athletic development world, you live in the world of preparing them to meet the demands of their sport. You're, you're preparing a better soccer playing athlete. And you're doing that through perhaps high-speed running, change of directions, uh, interval training, things of that nature. There's no replacement for developing soccer by playing soccer. So therefore, you get the communication, you get the decision-making, and you get the execution of those decisions via technique supported by the physical ability to do those things. So all of those things are a soccer action, right? A player has to read, see, understand, and then go execute something. And that's a soccer action. And you want to develop the soccer action at a certain intensity based upon where you're at in the plan of the week. And you can do that through intelligent planning, whether it's 3v3 games, 7v7 games, 11v11 games. The issue I see in youth soccer is that rarely do teams have the ability to play 11v11 and sometimes not even 8v8 depending upon the size of their squads. So coaches may not have an understanding of how to actually build small-sided games or specific training plans to develop the communication, Mm -hmm. the decision-making, the execution of those decisions. Uh, It requires a bit of an understanding. Uh, And I don't know that coaches have taken the time to sit down and map out lesson plans with that level of detail required yeah i mean i i was telling the coach just recently on the c license it takes me an hour maybe 45 minutes on a good day to map out a really really good planned training session and how many people are spending the time to do that so yeah that's that's the issue i see um i do think that there can be a time and place for isolated running if you understand energy zone development If you don't understand energy zone development and you don't understand Mm -hmm. how to plan speed endurance or you don't know how to plan a hit, then yeah, then you're probably just going to run for running sake with no, no direction. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I think that's the one, it's a huge, you know, huge issue. Uh, and I, and I've heard and seen it from coaches all over the area that I live in. And, um, one typically one has like just glued in my brain uh the coach did well this is supposedly the coach did a beat test the day before a game (laughs) and this girl was um was uh coming off acl And so she was like on, you know, uh, strict minutes and she came off and had some like, you know, pain. I think it was like, uh, she had some like, uh, tibia pain or something. Um, yeah. And, uh, like her shin and her like, um, anyways on the front of her knee. And then, uh, she was like, can you go back in, goes back in, tears the other ACL. Um, and so she's, yeah, it's crazy. And, uh, 
and it's funny because I talked to her about it because I've I've torn both my ACLs and um, she's like, yeah, my hamstring was like really tight and I'm like, yeah, I'm sure that was it was probably from all the running you did the day before and you weren't recovered and then you go into a high intensity game the next day and like, what do you expect? Um, it's it happens all the time. It's it's it blows my mind that you know it's even thought about. Um, so. Coaches are negligent. Co- and un- I mean, <laughs> I'm not a lawyer, right? So I, I can't get into like, yeah. the definitions of negligence yeah. and, um, you know, the, the different type of things that come up. But that is, that's a sad story. I mean, that's really unfortunate for that athlete. It's really yeah. unfortunate yeah. for them. And the education factor with parents and the education factor with coaches has got to continue to be raised. The bar has to continue to be raised. And that yeah. has to be continued to be met. Um, Cause at the end of the day, we're talking about like for a lot of what we're talking about, we're talking about children. We're talking about mm-hmm. kids who want to play for a love of what they want to do. And we yeah. need to support them. We need to be educated in ways of child development. Um, we need to understand how, how people develop at different rates. I mean, we could go on and on. It's just, that's an yeah. unfortunate reality that I would love to try and help create a bandwidth of change. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think the, the thing is, it's like that kind of stuff, like is the reason kids quit sports. It's like reoccurring injuries, um, you know, and, and so you have to like, as an S and C or even as a, just a human being, you have to like keep encouraging them to like, you know, not quit because of, you know, uh, you know, small bump in the road. Um, especially cause you know, you know, yeah, you tore your ACL and you had the other one just, you know, you just came back from the other one. So, but I, 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 I keep encouraging her cause it's, I understand the, the path. Um, but you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but you just got to really like uh, be very mindful about, you know, what you put yourself into and, 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 and really like listen to your body versus just like listen to the coach and saying, you know, I need a player. And then, you know, she goes in, you know, instead of like, Oh, I, I can't play like still feeling it. But the other issue I see is coaches, as you mentioned before, I just don't think they plan. You know, we as SNC coaches, I, you know, I plan, you know, months at a time for programming. Um, and I just don't think a lot of soccer coaches take the time, as you mentioned, and I know a few that do, um, to plan out a session. I, I don't think a lot of them do that. I think they just want to get the licenses and think, oh, I have my A, I have my B. And like, they're good to go. But I think the most important part about it is the planning of, you know, that day. Um, Because clearly this, whoever this coach was didn't plan (laughs) having high intensity running the day before a game, you know, and and like stuff like that. Yeah, there's uh, the unfortunate reality is a lot of coaches uh, will watch something on YouTube or see something in the Premier League or see something in La Liga and, you know, it's just a different, the sport may be similar, but it's a totally different context, different environment, yeah. different, different demands on these, you know, a, a 16 year old female 
who's got only three years of training, if you will, like her training age might be young, right? She mm-hmm. comes out and she wants to play. She's placed on a mid-level team. She's got three years of training age, not like eight compared to somebody else maybe. And then we treat her like, you know, she can play on the national team and therefore she's got to run like she's going to be on the national team. And it's, yeah. it's not, it's not helping the kids and it's not, no. it's not player centric. It's coach centric or ego centric. Yeah. yeah. And the planning, I mean, I, I think about it all the time with, with myself, like how, how often do I plan when I first started versus how, where I'm at now. I mean, it took me a while. It took me a while to grasp how well to plan with level of detail to, to basically to create an environment to actually sit down to write a lesson plan. Like I had mm-hmm. to, you know, turn the phone off I'd get away from the laptop, like just clear the mind and sit down and write it out, you know, and, and that takes an awareness in itself to be able to create space to be able to write a lesson plan. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, no, I, I, I totally agree with you because, I mean, I do the same thing when I write programs for, like, kids that I train. You know, it takes hours. Like, I do, like, sometimes I'm in front of the computer for four or five hours writing programs and because, like, I need to make sure that it's uh, set up for each kid and, um, you know, you know get, get what they're basically paying for. <laughs> So. You know, I want to I go so, back on a, on a real quick, just on a real quick point, Julian, yeah, if I may, yeah. I, know, I know we might be near, yeah. near time, but the, one of the issues, one of the many is that a U14 player will feel like they don't have power and that the coach holds the power. So they may not mm-hmm. feel comfortable speaking up because it's just implied, right? There's a non, no one's talking about it, but if you're the coach, you have power. And coaches may not realize the full extent of their power uh, in that relationship. And because a team of 15 players, you know, there's like 900 relationships going on there. It's not one relationship. You know, it's coach to one player, player to player. It's coach to two players. You can have like 900 relationships going on there. And at the end of the day, the player may feel like they are not in a position of power because the coach is going to decide on playing time. The coach is going to yeah. tell you when to run and do those things. So that would be an interesting conversation in itself to talk to some, some folks who are more well-versed in it than I am. Uh, but I do, I am consciously aware of that being an issue in our sport. Uh, and mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if it's in other sports as well. Oh yeah. I, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, it's, and you know, I coach a uh, high school and I take, I mean, I don't play, I don't like to play favorites. I play more of like, uh, you know, you know, if you, if you worked hard the whole week or whatever, I mean, this was like a couple of years ago. Um, it was more or less, uh, like, are right, you going to play? I mean, I, I pretty much played everybody an equal amount. Um, but it, it was just like your attitude, you know, showing up to practice, working hard in practice. Um, you know, I don't really care what club team you're on. You know, it's, it is what it is. Like this is a totally different team. Um, but you know, we did well. Um, but you know, it's one of those things where I agree with you. Like, 
a lot of these coaches just play favorites of players and they have that relationship with those players and, you know, um, and they sometimes depend on certain players over certain players more. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's not cool. Cause you know, you probably have somebody on the bench that could fill in the hole for a little bit. Why not? I mean, especially if you're playing, if you're uh, winning or something at a, like, you know, high, like a high number to a low number as far as like goals. And, um, and at least give that person some experience to play. Cause you know, I'm sure a lot of these coaches play 11 more, a, a certain 11 more than, you know, whoever else is there. So, you know, you can't really change that, <laughs> but, um, but anyways, kind of want to just finish talking about a little bit on the college and pro side. Uh, cause I know you've, you've been dabbling with both of those, like, so, you know, you talked about kids saying they want to play pro. I always, you know, hear that, hear the same thing, but like when a kid at, you know, 18, 19 or more 17, 18 years old is trying to play college or even pro, what do you find has been like one of the missing sort of like components for them to like reach that next level that they might need to work on more um, that just constantly keeps coming up like as you've gone through different teams and different levels and stuff like that? Well, that's the, that's a fascinating question, Julian. And, you know, my, my college experiences have been division two, II, division three, where I was an assistant coaches, but I've been around a lot of division one programs and I have many friends mm-hmm. who are division one head coaches, some of the best programs in the country. And I've had conversations with them, you know, about players that they, they feel like could be pros, but maybe aren't pros. Uh, mm-hmm. or, or vice versa, you know, um, could walk in the door and be a pro tomorrow, but maybe, um, you know, but, but it won't last, but a year or two, you know, if you will. And there's a couple of separating values, uh, that I've seen the number, the number one is the player's willingness, internal motivation. Mm-hmm their internal drive that doesn't come from any coach. It doesn't come from mom and dad. It comes from their own internal willingness to get slapped in the face, beat down and deal with adversity and overcome that adversity. So they're willing to put themselves in tough situations or they're willing, or they're just dealing with adversity. So I think, I think the number one thing is overcoming adversity their internal motivation then to overcome it, right? So there's one is you have the adversity, whatever that adversity might be, uh, whether it's an injury, it's growing up with, with inability to play club soccer. You know, um, you look at the Clint Dempsey story, right? From a long time ago, three hour driving one way for club soccer. Mm-hmm. So there's an adversity that they overcome. Um, and they're internally motivated to overcome it, to pursue what it is they're interested in doing. The second thing is, is natural talent. Mm-hmm. And you and I could look at a same player and say, well, we think that they're talented in one way. And you may say they're talented in another way, but I don't know that maybe we're talking the same context of what talent is. 
because the next coach who's going to pick that player up for college or from college into pros may have a different level of what they want regarding that talent. So I know players that have been drafted in MLS that are 6'5", 6'6", as a center back because in many ways, being 6'5", 6'6", is a talent. How they use that talent Mm -hmm. gets shown up in an MLS game or in a college game where the rate or the speed of things is much faster, you know, professionally. And so while they have this talent and they think it's going to play out and be positive, it doesn't. And it may not because they weren't, they just weren't ready for the pace of what was coming. Um, so I think those two things, having adversity and dealing with it, overcoming it, internally motivating and some sort of natural talent, whether it's between the ears and the six inches of the brain, whether it's, you know, their ability to deal with things under pressure. Um, those are the two things that I would say are the separating values and that the description of who's got talent and who doesn't is so nebulous right now that somebody at 12 and 13 could be different at 18. Um, mm-hmm. But there's something inherently talented about that player. Yeah, I was, uh, you talk about that. Uh, you're saying that 12, 13, being different to 18, I always think about the, uh, I don't know if you were there at the Washington DC NSCA uh, National Conference, the guy from Arsenal, who's the Arsenal, like youth development or youth strength and conditioning, sports medicine, Desmond. He, he, he basically had a, progression of these players over I forget I think it was like five or six years and you know the shortest guy ended up being the tallest guy you know at, at 18 um and I always tell I would and, and it's funny you say it, it's just like I always tell kids like even if they're small now like you never know man like you shoot up fast in one year six months um, so don't like be discouraged because, you know, you're the way you are now. It's, it's, it's like the natural process. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree that, you know, what you said, a lot of it is intrinsically motivated. Um, and I think that's, um, one of the issues with a lot of kids is a lot of it is pushed on by parents wanting to kind of live through their kid versus like the kid wanting to like actually want to play. Um, so it's, it's interesting um, that you say that. So, well, James, I appreciate it. Um, taking this time out of your day. Um, I know you're probably really busy and uh, uh, it's hard to get people on, but uh, I appreciate it. And um Thanks again. One other thing, how can people connect with you? Well, I've, I've been taking a hiatus from social media recently, just, uh, (laughs) just to own my time back, if you will. Um, you know, I mean, I, uh, the easiest way is, I don't know if I make my, my email available, but it's J W A G Z 13 at Gmail. Uh, That's, I'll put it in the information, put it in the notes. Yeah. I mean, that would be the way to get a hold of me right now. Um, but I'm, I'm actually taking a break from, from the social media just to, to see how much I want it or not need it, or, <laughs> you know, just to see, 
how much time I'm committing to other things. Um, but yeah. the, the private, yeah. I mean, I do have those things. I do have a Twitter handle. I do have an Instagram handle, a Facebook account and those types of things, but I'm, I'm better face to face or over the phone. Or, yeah. Uh, I feel so, you. So that would be the, I'm, I'm, I'm the same way, man. I mean, I, I just, I don't know. Uh, people think I'm like old fashioned. Like people email me. I'm like, I'm like, listen, just call me and we're going to have a conversation on the phone. It's easier. Like I can get through the, I can give you the answer like this versus like <laughs> 10 emails. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I prefer that method, but um, no, I appreciate you having yeah. me on Julian. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, man. It's been really, it's been really fascinating um, thinking about the journey and, you know, my, my journey is not linear by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I would just offer that uh, folks that are wanting to get into performance in soccer, you know, do it for the good of the players. Uh, mm-hmm. It's taken me a long time to learn that because, you know, in the beginning it was, it was about myself and it was about my ego and, you know, achieving something. And, uh, you know, I think I've become a better coach over time and I'm still not the best version of myself yet, but I think I hope to be someday. And if I do it with player centered, uh, I think I'll be on that track. So I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Train to Perform with Julian Sisman. Learn how you can work with Julian in a personal training session, either online or in person at prepareforperformance.com. And follow on social media for more tips on training, fitness, and sports performance on Twitter at jsisman underscore PFP and Instagram at prepareforperformance.